0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on Britain's child migrant program in which the British Empire sent children to live in Canada and Australia and Rhodesia and other parts of the empire. And the focus on that episode was really on Australia. A lot of the children who were sent to Australia wound up living in just horrifying conditions. And the governments of Great Britain and Australia later formally apologized for that whole thing. In that episode, we mentioned Rhodesia really almost in passing. It was almost like an aside Uh, I knew very little about Rhodesia and its history, and most of my research on that previous episode was really on Canada and Australia. So we really did not give Rhodesia a lot of attention, aside from that very brief passing mention. The day after we recorded, though, a gunman killed nine people at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A suspect was later named as Dylan Roth, and he confessed to the shooting and pictures of him Wearing a jacket with a Rhodesian flag on it eventually went viral. So suddenly our passing mention of Rhodesia seemed really woefully inadequate. But at that point, we could not really redo that episode. So today we are going to remedy that with some context on Rhodesia and why the Rhodesian flag is associated with white supremacy today.
4: Today, the territory that was once known as Rhodesia is two different nations, Zambia to the north and Zimbabwe to the south. Our primary focus in this episode is really the southern part of the territory. But to set the stage, we're going to talk a bit about how both of them came to be.
0: So for centuries, this part of Africa has been home to a number of Bantu-speaking peoples, One of these peoples, who were the ancestors of the Shona people, created an immense city known as Great Zimbabwe, which, according to legend, is also the home of the Queen of Sheba. It's estimated that more than 10,000 people lived in Great Zimbabwe at its peak. The city was so massive and so complex that European colonists arriving in the area in the 1800s actually credited its creation to foreign visitors, like Egyptians or Phoenicians, Uh, rather than having it be the work of Africans, which is what it actually was. Today, Great Zimbabwe is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In the mid
4: to late 1800s, those European explorers and colonists generally came into the region from the south. One of them was Cecil Rhodes, who had been sent to South Africa in 1870 to work on his brother Herbert's cotton farm, rather than going to university.
0: So we're going to talk very briefly about his time prior to becoming involved in what would later be Rhodesia. Uh, When Cecil Rhodes arrived in South Africa, his brother had actually already abandoned this farm in favor of a much more lucrative pursuit, which was diamond mining. Cecil convinced Herbert to come back to the farm, and they did try to make it go for a year or so. But in 1871, the two of them both moved to Kimberley, once again in pursuit of diamonds.
4: And although Cecil Rhodes' health had not been especially good for much of his life, he was super ambitious. And in 1881, he finished a degree, and he later co-founded De Beers Consolidated Mines with C.D. Rudd. With the help of their friend Albert Biet, De Beers established a monopoly that eventually controlled 90% of the world's production of diamonds.
0: Yeah, when when we say ambitious here, he had aspirations like, expanding the British Empire as far as possible, including reclaiming the United States, which at this point had been independent from Britain for a while. So, he yeah, had very high aspirations in terms of the British Empire, especially. So, the De Beers Diamond Cartel and the Diamond Trade could be a whole other podcast, and in fact, it has been, both on this show and on our prior podcast called Pop Stuff. But long story short... Cecil Rhodes did not really just get behind the idea of making a bunch of money and then hoarding it. He wanted to put that wealth into action. And so he made his way into politics in 1881, hoping to really transform this diamond wealth into political power, both in the context of the British Empire, as I just mentioned, and then also the politics of uh, Africa and other imperial powers within Africa.
4: After a while, and including a number of other events that we're not going to get into because it's outside the scope of this episode, he wanted to get into gold mining in what is now Zimbabwe. To do that, he needed to secure rights from King Lobengula, uh, ruler of the Ndebele. However, Lobengula did not trust him or any other white person apart from uh, missionaries. So Cecil Rhodes teamed up with Congregationalist John Smith Moffat, and together they persuaded Lobengula to sign an exclusive Treaty of Friendship in February of 1888.
0: So from there, they started trying to get Lobengula to give them mining concessions, which he was very extremely reluctant to do. Uh, he was pretty sure that if he gave these you know, European people rights to his land, that they were never going to leave. But in October of the same same year, after lots of pressure, he finally did grant mining concessions. But what he actually signed did not just give them rights to mine on his territory. He basically signed away control of the kingdom.
4: And with those concessions in hand, Rhodes went right to the British government, seeking a royal charter to start the British South Africa Company, with the goal of expanding British territory in that part of Africa. The charter was granted in 1889. The initial charter was for 25 years, and that was extended for 10 more years in 1915.
0: Beginning in 1890, which is the same year that Cecil Rhodes also took up the post of prime minister of Cape Colony, the British South Africa Company expanded British territory into what's now Zambia and Malawi. So this was way beyond the original territory that was initially negotiated with uh, King Lobangula.
4: And there are a zillion other things we could talk about when it comes to Cecil Rhodes' life and his activities in Africa, but uh, we actually need to move ahead in Zimbabwe's history specifically. And we're going to do that, but first we are going to have a brief word from a sponsor.
5: and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station
2: It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit.
1: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trepani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money?
1: You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How
5: could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world?
6: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now we're going to sort of trace the arc of Rhodesian history through its independence from Britain. In the 1890s, under the British South Africa Company, Great Britain acquired and appropriated the territory that would become northern and southern Rhodesia. It built new infrastructure, including lots of railroad, and used the paramilitary force as law enforcement. The British South Africa Company made money through mining and agriculture, as well as on collecting customs duties and other taxes and fees.
4: On paper, The British South Africa Company often got the consent of local African leaders before beginning operations. But as had been the case with King Lobengula, this consent was often reluctantly given at best. And Lobengula himself actually fled the region in 1893 following an armed resistance by the Ndebele against British advance. There were also multiple instances of the company running well past what was actually agreed to once that consent was actually given. And sometimes the company evaded uh, working with local governments without getting their consent at
0: all. And naturally, the local people often put up a lot of resistance to this, including armed resistance. So the law enforcement arm of the company became a fighting force to try to put down local dissent. There was extensive fighting between the African population and the British South Africa Company until 1897, And when I made that passing aside in our uh, British migrant child migrant program episode to what was happening in Rhodesia, like those are the sorts of things that I just thought were happening. Like the things that very frequently have happened in the like history of colonialism in terms of uh, like making unequal treaties and putting down local resistance with force and that kind of like those are the sort of things that I thought were probably going on in Rhodesia when I made that one passing aside. The British South Africa Company
4: administered Southern Rhodesia until 1923. But after the end of World War I, Rhodesia started pressuring the company to be allowed to govern itself. Eventually, a royal commission studied the issue, ultimately offering two options. Southern Rhodesia could join the Union of South Africa or become self-governing.
0: So this issue was put to a vote. But the thing was, the only people who had the right to vote were the 34,000 Europeans living in Rhodesia, not the African population of Rhodesia who did not have the right to vote. The vote wound up going in favor of self-government for southern Rhodesia. So Rhodesia at this point became a self-governing British colony, uh, with Britain retaining control of external affairs for southern Rhodesia and having legislative power, uh, basically a veto power, over uh, issues that would directly affect the African population.
4: The British Colonial Office took control of northern Rhodesia in 1924. And as we said at the top of the show, that's now Zambia. And from here on out, we're going to focus on the southern part of Rhodesia going forward.
0: We're also going to skip ahead by about 40 years. And during much of that 40 years, Rhodesia's economy did grow overall A lot of the money came from mining copper and gold and other materials, as well as raising cattle and growing crops like corn and tobacco. For a lot of that time, the white government operated with an attitude that Africans could eventually take over governing Rhodesia once they were experienced enough to cooperate with other governments on an international scale and basically keep up the economic progress that had been made under white rule.
4: This changed radically under Prime Minister Ian Douglas Smith, who took office in April of 1964. He was a war hero from the Royal Air Force who had survived both crashing and being shot down and had returned home with damage to one eye and part of his face. From the very beginning of his entry into Rhodesian politics, he wanted to protect white minority rule.
0: Uh, For a little more on his political background, in 1948, Smith had been elected to the Southern Rhodesian Assembly, and he joined the governing federal party in 1953. He continued to be part of this party until 1961.
4: The thing that prompted him to leave was that the federal party supported a new constitution, which would have allowed black Africans in Rhodesia to have a bigger part in parliament. Black Africans were at this point a huge majority, but had very little representation in the white government.
0: So with the federal party supporting this new constitution, Smith, who disagreed, broke away from it and helped found a new party called the Rhodesian Front. The party platform of the Rhodesian Front included gaining independence from Britain and continuing to govern Rhodesia via a white minority and not handing over power to the uh, majority black population. The Rhodesian Front gained support from white supremacists and they won the election in 1962 That same year, the U.N. General Assembly called for a more liberal constitution that would allow equal representation for the black population in Rhodesia. In
4: 1964, Smith became prime minister of Rhodesia, making him the first native-born prime minister of the nation. And he basically got to work trying to cement white rule over Rhodesia and to keep the country existing in a state of apartheid. He refused to even discuss reforms to the constitution that would let the majority black population have a proportional voice in the government, and he arrested and banned black nationalist leaders.
0: Organized black African resistance to minority white rule had really started to grow, basically as soon as Rhodesia had become a self-governing colony. And by the 1960s, black nationalist groups were emerging as an organized uh, presence within the country. This included the Zimbabwe African People's Union, or ZAPU, and the Zimbabwe African National Union, or ZANU. And two prominent leaders within these movements were Joshua Nkomo and Robert Mugabe. Relationships
4: with Great Britain were also starting to sour at this point. Smith tried to negotiate with Britain for total independence, but the British government's position was that Rhodesia's black population needed to have a voice in its government that reflected the size of its population. At this point, there were 220,000 white Rhodesians and almost 4 million black Rhodesians, almost none of whom were permitted to vote or hold office.
0: So distributing power so that the races could be represented equally was something that Smith absolutely refused to consider, even though it was literally the one thing that would have made Great Britain open to the idea of Rhodesian independence. Eventually, negotiations between Rhodesia and Great Britain totally broke down.
4: So on November 11th of 1965, Ian Smith issued the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, also called the UDI, in which Rhodesia declared its independence from Great Britain. He said this was the only way to maintain, quote, civilized standards.
0: The tone of this document is, like, very similar to the, uh, the like, United States Declaration of Independence from Britain. But the wording of it it has a whole other subtext. It's basically like we've been governing ourselves for this long and we have seen repeatedly other nations uh, have their own populations take over and it hasn't gone as well. So we respect you, your majesty, but we're independent now. (laughs) That's basically what it boils down to. So this unilateral declaration of independence did not go over well and it did not go over well on an international scale. The international community was outraged, and most nations did not recognize Rhodesia as a legitimate country at all. For a sense of the timing of when this all happened, uh, this was two years after the March on Washington and Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. It was a year after President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It was the same year as the Selma to Montgomery march and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in the United States. So happening concurrently with black Americans seeking the rights that had already been granted to them in the Constitution, black Africans in Rhodesia were seeking the right to participate in the government basically at all. And Ian Smith had gone so far as to declare independence from Great Britain rather than do that.
4: At Britain's request, the UN Security Council imposed economic sanctions against Rhodesia in 1966, the first time it had used this tactic. Smith responded by defaulting on all of Rhodesia's debts, which were backed by Great Britain, and that put Britain on the hook for everything that Rhodesia owned.
0: It was basically a very novel way of, uh, stabbing Great Britain's economy while balancing the Rhodesian economy, uh, there's also an argument to be made that uh, that this all would have been over very quickly if Britain had invaded Rhodesia, but Britain did not want to do that. So Smith cut off all ties with Great Britain and started the wheels turning on a new constitution for Rhodesia, and one that would, instead of eventually handing over power to the black majority, one that would make Rhodesia a republic, while guaranteeing that the rule of that republic would be solidly, solidly in the hands of a white minority permanently.
4: All of this was put to a vote, but the people who had the right to vote in Rhodesia at this point were overwhelmingly white. So Smith's plan passed by a landslide. Parliament passed the new constitution in November of 1969, and Rhodesia declared itself a republic on the following March 2nd.
5: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant
2: Listen to The Daily Show, ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So in this point, the several of the black nationalist organizations that had already existed in Rhodesia banded together to form the patriotic front. Both Joshua Nkomo and Robert Robert Mugabe were involved in this organization. The Patriotic Front started leading guerrilla warfare efforts to try to take control of Rhodesia back from the minority to the majority.
4: As the Patriotic Front fought against the Rhodesian armed forces, the economy of Rhodesia started to crumble under the strain. White Rhodesians started to emigrate out of Rhodesia, and this war went on until 1977. Nearly 30,000 people died, and most of those people were black Africans.
0: There are a lot of reasons why this went on for so long. Uh, that Some of them were that, like, number one, guerrilla fighting tends to be drawn out and kind of horrible. Uh, but in addition to that, there were several factions within the African population, and sometimes they were good at working together, and then sometimes they had sort of fundamentally different viewpoints on how things should proceed, and it just became this long, long, drawn-out conflict that was pretty brutal and gruesome. Finally, in 1977, after immense pressure from diplomatic and economic and military directions, Smith started negotiating with Abel Muzariwa, who was of the United African National Council. He was a moderate black Rhodesian leader and a bishop in the Methodist Church.
4: Power started to be transferred from the minority white government to black Rhodesians in 1978. Although at this point... The goal was to give black Rhodesians the right to vote while still protecting the interests of the white ruling class. At this point, Rhodesia also became known as Rhodesia Zimbabwe. In
0: 1979, in an election in which the black population had much greater access to voting rights, the United African National Council won a majority of the seats that had been allotted for black citizens. But the UANC did not actually have the support of the patriotic front, one of the reasons for this was actually because the this new plan basically guaranteed the white minority a certain proportion of seats in the government so that they would continue to be represented in the government. Uh, but the patriotic front really wanted the Zimbabwe, uh, what would be Zimbabwe, to become like a black national state. So they were opposed to there being representation for the white minority in the government. So that was why this continued uh, to have guerrilla warfare going on. Uh, because the the patriotic front didn't really agree with the plan that had been put into place.
4: So at the end of that year, Britain briefly took control again until a new round of elections could be held. ZANU, which had taken the name Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, won a majority of seats, and Robert Mugabe became the first prime minister of Zimbabwe.
0: On April eighteenth, 1980, Zimbabwe gained recognition as an independent state.
4: So after all that, it seems kind of obvious why the flag of Rhodesia might be associated with white supremacy today. But there is actually a whole other layer to this story.
0: Not just because Rhodesia was operated as a white supremacist state with uh, Ian Smith as the prime minister. A lot of it actually has to do with Zimbabwe in the intervening years since it became an internationally recognized state uh, up until today.
4: When Robert Mugabe became prime minister of Zimbabwe, his goal was to move the nation towards being a one-party socialist state in which disparities between races and classes were abolished. The ongoing warfare and strife had also damaged the economy, and the infrastructure and social services needed big investments as well.
0: If you ever watch the international news, you know that Robert Mugabe still leads Zimbabwe. He's now the executive president after having changed the constitution in 1987. And a lot of those intervening years have been extremely troubled, to put it extremely mildly. At the very beginning of its existence as a recognized state, Zimbabwe experienced drought, continued white immigration out of the country, and a very slow recovery from the tens of thousands of deaths during the warfare that led to its independence.
4: Zimbabwe then went through five years of civil war after Mugabe charged Joseph Nakomo with plotting a coup against it. And in 1988, the nation lost its international aid after intervening in the Democratic Republic of Congo's own civil war, purportedly so Mugabe could protect his own interests there.
0: There were a series of land management programs that were meant to return land that had previously been seized or otherwise gained, not necessarily uh, ethically, by the Europeans And a lot of those backfired. In some cases, for example, farms were seized and then not put back into production, which forced the people who had been working there into unemployment. In other cases, seized farmland was put back into production, but without experienced farmers to keep things running smoothly. All of this further depressed Zimbabwe's economy while also leading to food shortages.
4: Although the economy did grow between... uh... 2010 and 2013, it was by that point just deeply damaged and it slowed significantly in 2014. And the nation has suffered from extreme inflation as it printed more money to make up for its deficit.
0: There is also a lot of criticism of Mugabe himself. As his popularity has waned, elections in Zimbabwe have increasingly been described by international observers as neither free nor fair. Some of these are a little more recent history than we normally get into in depth on the podcast, but there are whole weird shenanigans uh, with voter suppression and coercion and violence. And in one case, uh, an election that Mugabe lost, but there was not a majority, so there had to be a runoff. And then he won the runoff, and that whole thing appears very suspicious to a lot of people. Currently, according to the CIA
4: World Factbook, Zimbabwe's life expectancy at birth is just 55 years. By 2013 estimates, the adult prevalence rate for HIV in Zimbabwe is almost 15%.
0: So white supremacists' adoption of the Rhodesian flag as an emblem is really about the comparison of Rhodesia under white rule when the black population was deeply discriminated against, but the nation was prospering on paper, uh, and afterward, when the majority is adequately represented in the government, but the nation itself is home to just years and years of struggle and strife and a leader who has become notorious in a lot of ways around the globe for various uh, reasons. <laughs> like, that could be a whole other show.
4: So not the most happy, fun time, but it does contextualize a little bit why why in the news... There was so much commentary about the the photos that had emerged of Dylan Roth and his jacket that had the uh, Rhodesian flag on it.
0: Yeah, he also had a flag of uh, like a South African apartheid era flag, uh, which was more obvious to a lot of people. Like the story of apartheid in South Africa, I think is a lot more known to people today than probably uh, the story of Rhodesia. I say that in part because uh, also... One of the reasons that I have a suspicion that, that the story of Rhodesia is a lot less well-known is that after I had been researching the podcast on the child migrant program, but before uh, Rhodesia suddenly became national news, uh, I was actually in, in a room of trivia, pub trivia with lots of smart people. And one of the questions was about why Rhodesia declared its independence for Britain. Uh, no one knew. I knew part of the story, which was the part where they had been trying to maintain a privileged white ruling class, but like not the whole story of declaring independence from Britain in order to maintain a state of white supremacy. So I have a much lighter topic for some listener mail.
4: I, I know you have a lighter topic for listener mail. So let's move to that.
0: Cause it's going to yeah. be a little
4: bit fun.
0: It is a little bit fun. I have email from Larry who uh, wrote to us after our episode Um, on the uh, archaeological work regarding the Harvard Indian School, which was actually Holly's episode. You may have noticed that normally when we do listener mail, Holly often reads mail that's related to episodes that she was the primary researcher on. I often read uh, mail related to the episodes that I was a primary researcher on. I'm doing the opposite today, (laughs) because that that episode was entirely Holly's ballgame. Uh, But I'm going to take this email for reasons that are about to come obvious. So Larry says, (laughs) first off... First off, love the podcast. I always like hearing about local events that I never knew happened locally, especially this most recent podcast. There was one pronunciation in the beginning of the episode that caught me off guard. Massachusetts cities and areas have weird pronunciations. Worcester, Haverhill, Leicester, etc. And for those of you not looking at this email with me on paper, those look like Worcester, Haverhill, and Leicester. Peabody is also the same. I could be mistaken since it is the museum name, but the town of Peabody is pronounced Peabody. Keep rolling out the podcast. It makes my job driving to sites as a wastewater engineer more enjoyable. Thanks, uh, or regards, Larry. So thank you, Larry, for sending this note for a couple reasons. One, it is Peabody. (laughs) Holly and I had a whole conversation about whether to re-record, like, the time that she said Peabody. Because it looks like Peabody on paper. I think 99% of English speakers would probably... Uh, in America, say Peabody.
4: Well, um, and Diana and Trish were so gracious; they did not correct me because they're very sweet women. And no, didn't, didn't want to. <laughs> make you totally said, cool-ish.
0: "Yeah, you said Peabody on the phone with them." Uh, we had the only reason, though, that I know that that Peabody, Massachusetts, and the Peabody Museum, which are both named after George Peabody, and I don't know why he said his name that way. Uh, the only reason I know that's how those are pronounced that way is because I live here now. <laughs> You've actually lived there for a while now. A bit. Uh, Surprise, everyone. So, uh, basically, uh, we've talked about my fiancé before. He lives here in Massachusetts. Uh, His job is infinitely less portable than my job is. And so I moved. Uh, And our plan was that we were going to move. I was going to move. (laughs) We didn't both move. Uh, I was going to move. We were going to make sure everything still worked with the podcast. And then we were going to tell people but because of the lag time between when we record podcasts and when they come out. Once we had established that everything was fine and the podcast still worked and we were still able to do it and people were still enjoying it. Uh, it seemed really awkward to then be like, oh, by the way, this happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, we're really glad that, uh, that Larry <laughs> sent us this note. Because it seemed like a good segue uh, to a secret that was previously known to like people at work, friends and family, uh, some random folks who went to a Western Massachusetts meetup with John Hodgman uh, and the audience of Stuff You Should Know's live show in Massachusetts, <laughs> uh, which I will admit was a reason why we were like, we should probably explain this to everybody before they're like, hey, what is going on with this thing that I heard from Stuff You Should Know?
4: Yeah, so we we've had a couple of times when people have uh we've had visitors to the office or whatever, and they've been like,
0: "Hey, that's so cool!
4: Is Tracy here?" And I'm like, "She's not in today." <laughs> yeah, she's teleworking today, which is true. But I didn't. But the cat wasn't out of the bag, and it wasn't my
0: information <laughs> to just blurt out. So right. So that cat is out of that bag now. Thank you, Larry, for being our segue to that announcement. <laughs> that uh, oh right, Nate DeMeo also uh when we recently talked to Nate DeMeo he was like yeah i thought it was kind of weird that you went on a vacation to uh to dover uh,
4: <laughs> how would you get
0: there from yeah from atlanta and the answer is on a train from boston yeah uh now you
4: know now you know that only one of us is in atlanta and the other is in boston so that's the scooperoo once in a while i mean tracy comes back to the the house of works main office Uh, usually about once a month and sometimes we record Uh here but usually it's online
0: so yep the internet's a magical thing
4: word
0: Uh, so thanks very much Larry for writing to us about Peabody I do not know why George Peabody said his name that way I did google why did George Peabody pronounce his name that way and I did not find an answer Uh, it does look exactly like Peabody so anyway if you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast (laughs) <laughs> we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at Missed History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a spread shirt store where you can get lots of shirts, including one that says I heart exhumations and the heart is a real heart. I love that one. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. And if you put the word Zimbabwe in the search bar, you're going to find a couple of articles. One is the top 10 most dangerous places you should definitely visit. The other is top 10 countries operating in the red. That gives you some flavor about how things are going in Zimbabwe right now. Uh, you can also come to our website, MissedInHistory.com, where you will find an archive of every episode we have ever done. And show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done. Lots of other cool stuff. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MythInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin" on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is